The following is a teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org new. The scripture reading for today is from Romans 8, 31 to 39. ¿Qué pues diremos a esto? Si Dios está por nosotros, ¿quién contra nosotros? El que no eximió ni a su propio Hijo, sino que lo entregó por todos nosotros. ¿Cómo no nos dará también con Él todas las cosas? ¿Quién acusará a los escogidos de Dios? Dios es el que justifica. ¿Quién es el que condena? Cristo es el que murió, más aún el que también resucitó. El que además está a la diestra de Dios, el que también intercede por nosotros. ¿Quién nos separará del amor de Cristo? ¿Tribulación o angustia? ¿O persecución o hambre? ¿O desnudez o peligro o espada? Como está escrito, por causa tuya estamos siempre expuestos a la muerte. Somos considerados como ovejas de matadero. Pero en todas estas cosas somos más que vencedores por medio de Aquel que nos amó. Porque estoy persuadido de que ni la muerte ni la vida, ni ángeles ni principados, ni potestades, ni lo presente ni lo porvenir, ni lo alto ni lo profundo, ni ninguna otra cosa creada, nos podrá separar del amor de Dios que es en Cristo Jesús, nuestro Señor. That is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks to be God. Please be seated. William Shakespeare, in the opening scene of the third act of his groundbreaking tragedy called Hamlet, poses a rhetorical question. And the question that he poses is, to be or not to be? JFK, in his um, address, stands before the country and even the world and, and poses a question. And the question he poses is, what can you do for your country? Dr. King, in 1968, stands before uh, Montgomery, Alabama, the capital city, and, and he, he poses a rhetorical question. And the question he poses is, how long must we wait? Nothing makes a point better than a good old rhetorical question. What in the world is a rhetorical question? A rhetorical question is a question that is posed not just to answer a question, but rather to make a point. In fact, a rhetorical question is a question that is posed in order to, to help the audience or whoever is hearing render their own verdict. Case in point, a man walks into a restaurant one day and he orders a bowl of soup. Uh, the waitress leaves and after a few minutes she comes back with a bowl of soup and sets it on his table. He looks at the, and she walks away. He looks at the soup, then he looks to the left of the soup and to the right of the soup, and in a confused way, calls for her to return. She comes back, and he poses a rhetorical question to her. He says to her, will you taste the soup? And she responds, is the soup too hot? And he says, no, will you just taste the soup? She says, is the soup too cold? No, just, just taste the soup. She says, did we bring you the wrong soup? If so, we can go get you a, no, 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 just taste the soup. 
Well, finally, she acquiesces. She, she agrees and she says, okay, okay, I will taste the soup. She looks at the bowl, looks to the left of it and to the right of it and says, wait, where's the spoon? And he says, aha, aha. See, see the point is, um, though she was able to bring him a bowl of soup, she failed in bringing him a spoon. And rather than simply telling her, you forgot to bring me a spoon, he poses a rhetorical question. Why? In order to make a point and to help her render her own verdict. And in our text for today, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, Paul, whom we could call the king of rhetoricality, poses six rhetorical questions. Why does he do this? He does so in order for, to make a point. He does so so that we, the listener or the, the church of Rome, can render their own verdict. If you have your Bibles today, turn with me to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. The Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, says this. What then are we to say about these things? Now, I don't know about you, but, but I love law and order. And so I can't help but imagine an attorney in this, this moment, Paul as an attorney, making his case and presenting all the evidence that is before him. He stands before the jury and, 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 and breaks it down so it can forever and continuously be broke. And after doing so, he says, verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? If you have a pen or a highlighter, I want you to highlight these two words, these things. What in the world are these things that Paul is referring to? Well, if you just go three verses up in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, he tells you. In fact, whenever I read Romans 8, 28, I can't help but get excited on the inside. I can't help but, but smile on the outside. I can't help but shout hallelujah when I read Romans 8, 28. And so if I get a little excited, please excuse me, okay? Uh, in fact, feel free to join me, all right? Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul says, and we know. Now, this is powerful because he, he doesn't say we hope. He doesn't say we think. He doesn't say we wish. He says we know. And then he goes on to say we know that not some things, not most things, not a few things, not 30% of things. He says all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. Let me say it again for the nosebleeds in the back. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. I can't just move on from that because it just makes me feel good on the inside. In fact, I feel like there may be someone here today who received some news that has them discouraged. I believe there are people in this room who, who, who received some news recently. Uh, maybe you lost your job recently, or, or maybe you lost a family member or, or a friend, or maybe you got a diagnosis that doesn't look good, or maybe when you look at your life, you can't help but feel like your circumstances are bleak. Well, I stopped by Ken West Parkway today to remind you and to inform you that all things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. All things work together for the good of those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. 
In fact, Paul goes on to say in, in, in verses 29 and, and verse, verse 30, he says, when we love the Lord and are called according to his purpose, uh, something happens to us. We are foreknown by Jesus. We are predestined. We are justified. The Bible says that we are, are, um, are, are, are new. We are changed. We become something different. We are glorified through him. And it's on these things that Paul writes in Romans chapter 8, verse 31, what then are we to say about these things? And then he poses this rhetorical question, uh, and I want to pose it to you today. He says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, I've been gone from IBC for about seven years, but I still know you. I still know what you're thinking right now. When you, you read those words and, and hear those words, who can be against us? Your response is, well, let me tell you who can be against us. Uh, the IRS can be against us. The, the FBI can be against us. My boss can be against us. My spouse can be against us. My children can, uh, all these things, my bank account, come on, somebody, can, can be against us, right? Uh, in fact, if we want to be really petty, we could say, hey, Paul, how dare you say that? Have you forgotten, Mr. Apostle Paul, that you have been lashed over 195 times according to Scripture so far? How dare you say that, Apostle Paul? Have you forgotten that you have been beaten almost to death three times according to the Scriptures? Uh, you have been to prison, Paul, uh, more times than Martha Stewart. And you have the nerve to say these words. How dare you, Paul? But Paul, like, have you forgotten that you, you have this thorn in your flesh, that you have gone to God over and over and over again, asking him to remove? How dare you ask who can be against us? Well, let me help you. In fact, lean in. Come on now, lean in. I'm not joking. Here's what Paul is saying. If God, don't stop, come on. If God is for us, who can be against us, wait, and when? That's what Paul is saying. If, if You can sit back now. If God is for us, who can be against us and when? My son, Mason, is 11 years old. Uh, in fact, some of you were at the hospital when he was born. Uh, he loves to play basketball. In fact, every day after school, after he finishes his homework, he goes outside in our backyard and, and practices basketball. He loves to play basketball. He's getting better and better and better every day. And every once in a while, about once a week, he'll come to me and say, Dad, I want to play against you. And so I change clothes, put my shorts on, put my shoes on, and we go out and he plays basketball against me. But guess what? Even though he makes a few good moves and, and scores a few baskets, guess what? Come on now, he does not win. Right? And what Paul is saying to us, we will be attacked. There will be times when things come against us, but guess what? Those things will not win. That's good news this morning. Somebody should be shouting for that. Somebody should be praising the Lord because of that. Things will happen in our lives, but they will not win. Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us and win? 
Verse 32 goes on to say, he did not, he, God, did not even spare his own son, Jesus, but offered him up for us all. And then he poses another rhetorical question. How will he, God, not also with him, Jesus, grant us everything, and this is implied, for salvation? Now, according to uh, scholars and uh, theological uh, research, uh, this idea is known as a typical Hebrew Reason is known as typical Hebrew reasoning. It's saying if God will do the great, if God can do the greater thing, i.e., uh, uh, to send His Son to die, then of course He can do the lesser thing, which is uh, save us or sustain us or allow us to experience uh, goodness and His mercy in life. Allow all things to work together for the good of those who love Him. In fact, Paul goes on to say in verse 33, poses another uh, rhetorical question. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect, God's uh, predestined people? Who can bring an allegation against God's elect? And then he says, God is the one who justifies. And then he poses another rhetorical question. Who is the one who condemns? Now, this question has already been answered because in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, Paul says, there is therefore no condemnation. To those who are in Christ Jesus. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, to those who love the Lord and as a result are called according to his purpose and as a result are, are foreknown by God and, and predestined by God and, and justified by God and, and glorified by God. Here's the thing. There will be accusations against us, but the accusers won't win. There will be allegations against us, but the alle not, not alligators, the, the alleggers, alligators too, the, the alleggers won't win. There will be people who try to condemn us, but the, con come on somebody, the condemners won't win. Why? Because we are justified in Christ. We are justified in Christ. I, I walk differently. Why? Because I'm justified. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Why? Because I'm justified in Christ Jesus. In fact, Paul describes Christ Jesus in verse 34, the second part, he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. Christ Jesus is not only the one who died, but he is the one who was raised from the dead. Not only is Jesus the one who died and is raised from the dead, but he is the one who is seated at the right hand of God. Not only is he the one who died and rose from the dead and is seated at the right hand of God, he is the one who is interceding on our behalf. Listen, can I keep it real with you? Uh, this is not a rhetorical question. Can I keep it real with you? If I can't, please let me know, because I'm about to cross over. If, if I died and went to be with God in heaven and was seated at the right hand of the Father, I wouldn't be thinking about y'all. <laughs> Nor would I be talking to God about you. But Jesus, the Bible says, loves us so much that although he is in heaven with the Father, seated at his right hand, he is not only talking about us, but he's interceding on our behalf. That's love. In fact, Jesus went to Calvary to save a wretch like you and me. That's love. 
They, they hung him high and, and stretched him wide and, and bowed his head. And for me, he died. That's love. Well, that's not how the story ends because three days later, he rose again. That's, that's love. That's love. We were standing up here. The worship team was leading us in. Oh, how he loves us. He is jealous for me. Love's like a, a hurricane. I am a tree. Uh, he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. In fact, Paul talks about this love in verse 35. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 35, who can separate us from the love of God? A rhetorical question. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? And then he throws out a couple options. Can affliction, listen, anybody ever been afflicted before? Oh, not, not many. That's, that's pretty good. <laughs> listen, uh, three, four weeks ago, my wife and I and our children were, were in the, the kitchen preparing for the day about 6 a.m. We received a phone call that one of our church members died in his sleep. And for the last eight years, we have had no uh, directly, none of our church members have died. So this was the first death in our church. Not only that, I had known this gentleman for 20 plus years of my life. And we get word that he had died. And oh, we were broken. We were sad. We were afflicted. And the Bible says, Paul asks, uh, can, can affliction separate us from the love of God? Now, sometimes it feels like it does, right? Okay, maybe not affliction for you. Maybe, uh, maybe for you it's distress. Anybody been distressed before? Don't lie. Come on. Fifteen of you. All right, we're moving up. We're moving up. Listen, uh, February 2020, we purchased our, our church campus. Uh, five different buildings on this campus, beautiful campus. Um, we bought the, the property in February, and in March, what happened? Pandemic, yes. We were so excited about having this building. We're like, we're going to do so many amazing things in, in this building. Then a month later, COVID hits. Not to mention, uh, we, 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 we knew that we had to do some, some um, city-regulated work on our building. We need to install a fire sprinkler system in our building. And, uh, and so as they were preparing to install the fire sprinkler system, uh, they were looking at the ceiling, and they realized there was asbestos in the ceilings. Asbestos in the ceilings, right? And so we had to remove, uh, well, we didn't. We had to have professionals come in and, uh, with hazmat suits on and remove uh, the ceilings, which cost, come on, cost the money, right? Um, not only that, but when they removed the ceilings, the city came in and was walking around and was like, you know what? That electrical work, that's, that's ancient. You need to redo that as well. Just, just Listen. Stuff on top of stuff on top of stuff. And, and, and uh, what we thought was going to take two months turned into nine months. We thought we were going to be out of our building for two months, June, July, boom, we're good. Come back in August, we're straight. No, nine months, we're out of our building. In the middle of COVID, I was distressed. I was anxious. Paul asks the question, can, 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 can distress separate us from the love of God? He goes on to ask, can the persecution, anybody ever been persecuted before? 
All right, three people. We're going, we're going up and down. Okay, what about, uh, what, what about famine or, or nakedness or danger or sword? All these things that we've, we've experienced in our lives. Paul asked the question, can they separate us from the love of God? Now, Paul is writing this letter to the Roman church, and he's putting all these questions, these rhetorical questions in there. And I can imagine Paul in this moment uh, looking at all these questions and thinking, you know what? I'm not there to see how they're going to respond. And so I'm posing all these questions. They could very well get it wrong. So Paul transitions from uh, speaking, uh, you know, from um, speaking rhetorically to, to very matter of fact. In fact, he says in, in verse 37, uh, that, let me help you out. He says, no, the answer is no. If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. Who can separate us from the love of God? Paul is saying, no one. Paul says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. What does that mean? It means that in the end, we win. In, hallelujah, in the end, we win. Now, don't get it twisted. Like, don't, don't start feeling good about yourself. We don't win because of ourselves, right? We win because of Jesus. Because of his love for us. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that, that whosoever believeth in him shall not perish but, but have everlasting life. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in him, the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. We are conquerors. We win. Why? Because of the love Jesus. Verse 38, Paul breaks it down so that it can forever and continuously be broke. He says in verse 38 and 39, and I'm going to try my best to, to read this without crying. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verse 38, he says, For I am persuaded. Despite the, the, the 195 lashes I've experienced, I am persuaded. Despite uh, three times being beaten almost to death, I am persuaded. Despite being in prison uh, so many times he can't even count, I am persuaded. Despite this, this thing on me, this, this thing that I cannot remove and I ask God to remove it and it's keeping me down, I am persuaded, Paul says, that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, uh, nor heights, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate me from the love of Christ. Hallelujah. But listen, here's the thing. The enemy comes to kill, steal, and destroy. And what he desires to do, and oftentimes the way that he kills, steals, and destroys us is through our thoughts. And what the enemy does is, is, is as soon as we experience some persecution, he comes and says, God doesn't love you. The moment we begin to feel affliction in our lives, we, we get confused and the enemy sneaks in and says, the reason that's happening is because Jesus doesn't love you. As soon as distress becomes a part of our lives and we don't know what to do and we, we get stressed, the enemy says, Psst. oh, how he doesn't love you. Oh, how he doesn't love you so. 
In those moments when we're experiencing nakedness and and confusion and all these danger and sword is happening uh, around us, uh, he says, oh, the reason that's happening is because you're not loved. Well, guess what? I stopped by here to tell you today that it's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a lie from the pit of hell. In fact, the next time the enemy tries to tell you something that is not true, we must be reminded that we are secure in Jesus's love. The next time we experience affliction in our lives, and trust me, you will be reminded that Jesus's love is secure in me. The next time you find yourself in a a difficult situation where you don't know what to do and it seems like the enemy is speaking things to you and you don't know what to do, be reminded that Jesus' love for you is secure forever. Why? Jesus' love is secure in us because of Jesus' work on the cross. The Bible says that Jesus came to this earth and lived, but he didn't just live. He he, he died for us. He took on the sins of this world. He took on the sins of our lives, and and, and he didn't just die. The Bible says that three days later, he rose from the dead with all power in his hand. In fact, he didn't just die, but the Bible says he he went up to be with the Father in heaven, and, and he conquered death. He conquered all of our sin, and for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose for those who uh, have been foreknown by him and predestined by him and justified by him and, and, and glorified by him, we can walk with confidence, not in ourselves, but in the fact that his love for us never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. If you believe that this morning, stand to your feet and give the Lord a hand clap this morning. Not haphazardly, do it like you mean it. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for your love. Thank you, Father, for your love. Thank you, Jesus, for your love. Amen. Amen. As the band prepares to come, I'd like to pray for you this morning. Father in heaven, the creator of heaven and earth, the one who spoke this world into existence, the one by which we live and breathe and have our being. We come to you this morning broken. We come to you this morning with affliction. We come to you with distress. We come to you with damaged hearts, persecuted hearts, hurt, broken, sad, depressed, anxious. And for many of us, we don't know what to do. For many of us, we have walked, came to church today, hoping as the woman with the issue of blood to just touch the hem of your garment so that we might be healed. Maybe something would be said today that would remind us and, and heal us of the brokenness that we feel inside today. Father, you know each and every person in this room. You know what they are dealing with. You know what they are carrying. You know what's going on in their lives. 
Father God, my humble prayer this morning is that we might be reminded of your love for us. For your love never fails. It never gives up. It never runs out on us. And Father, your word reminds us that if we love you, then we are called according to your purpose, which means you have a plan for each and every person in this room and watching online. Father, thank you that you have a plan for us, that you're just not letting us do our own thing in this world with no plan. Father, you have a plan. Thank you that you have a plan for us. Thank you that we are called according to your purpose. Thank you that you foreknew us, that you knew us even when we were in our mother's womb, even before that. Thank you that that we are foreknown by you. Thank you that we are predestined by you. Thank you uh, that, that you have justified us. Thank you that you have glorified us. Father, I pray that your word does not return void. That every person in this room or watching online will walk away today reminded of how they can experience a love that is unlike any love in this world. For your love never fails, never gives up. Your love is secure for those who love you and are called according to his purpose. Father, I believe there are people in this room who have not loved you in the past. Therefore, they are not called according to your purpose. My prayer, Father, is that something will happen today through your spirit that will force them to fall to their knees and say, I desire to, I have run from you in the past. I have even hated you in the past, but today I surrender my life to you and say, Lord, I love you. So we humble ourselves right now in this moment. Help us to remember the truth, even in the face of lies. The devil is the father of lies. There's no one who can lie better than him. But Father, you have given us the strength and the power to uh, discern what is not true and to walk in your truth, which is you, you love us and your love for us is secure. Now, may we walk in that. May we live in that. In Jesus' name we pray. May we all say together, amen. Thank you for listening to this teaching from Irving Bible Church. To learn more about who we are, visit irvingbible.org slash new.